Well, it is a privilege to welcome you here this morning. I'm Pastor Joey, and it's a privilege to have you here at Stonesteel Community Church, as always. Um, those of you who are in our building this morning, it's always an encouragement to me to see your smiling faces, and it lifts me up, and so I just want to thank you for being a ministry to me today. And then also, those of you who are tuned in online, our podrishners, we welcome you as well. And then from time to time throughout the week, I get to talk to people in the community, and they share with me, hey, we watch you online every week. And sometimes it's easy to forget about people out there in Podrishner world, but we don't forget about you this morning. We pray for you as you recover from your accidents and mishaps in life, <clears throat> some of you on walkers and wheelchairs, some of you going through undiagnosed or, or uh, undetermined um, diseases and problems, and you're not able to be here this morning, we welcome you, and we're so glad you're joining us uh, this morning live. Um, it is a joy to come into our building as well. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you've noticed that, well, I'm sure you've noticed the wonderful decoration improvements, you've noticed the technological enhancements, um, you've noticed the little things that are happening just to spruce up our building and get it, get it looking so much better. Listen, our church is being positioned to be used on a far greater scale than we've ever seen it used before. We're working on partnerships such that Answers in Genesis down in Kentucky and, and other places where we want to be satellite extensions for these ministries so that those who are partnering with us, rather than reinvent the wheel, they're partnering with us. We're partnering with them. We're, we're uh, proclaiming a biblical worldview, which we're basically clearing the clutter out so people can get to the feet of Jesus faster. And, and the way you've got to clear the clutter and the debris, you've got to address issues that people have in their worldview where they're seeing life maybe in a way that's not a biblical worldview and therefore it's discouraging people in their lives. So, for example, um, we, we are promoting that we have been all created by God. And that's a very important truth and belief, but not everybody's teaching that, especially if you go to the second university. They're not teaching that. And here's the deal. If you were taught from an early age that you came from slime, you're going to have a really tough problem and a really challenging um, job in front of you to try to figure out your gender, your sexuality, what family means, what your purpose in life is, what meaning in life is, and how that comes to us. If you, if you came from slime, some, in, some impersonal process that gave um, a beginning to you, then there's no personality behind that, there's no responsibility behind that, and there's nothing special about you necessarily, right? Well, we, we think the opposite. We believe there you have been created by God. Something went wrong in the world. God's done an incredible plan through Jesus to fix this thing, and he invites you and I to join him in the process. And not only that, but it all gets resolved eventually in Jesus. And so uh, part of that process this morning is that we like to hold a high view of the Bible here at Stones Hill. It's somewhat unique. Um, we have a very high view of the scriptures. Um, we don't sit in judgment over them. They sit in judgment over us. And uh, part of that high view, that core value of a high view of the Bible is that we actually open the Bible every week. And, and it's my privilege to talk to you out of the Bible. Usually the Bible hits me upside the head, and i got to live with it the whole week. You guys get to live with it about 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. All right? So uh, hopefully we, we live it out, though. We walk it out. After hearing the word, the goal is not to be a smarter sinner. No, no. We want to go be changed. We want to be transformed, metamorphosed into a new kind of life and living. And so... It's really my privilege to broker and facilitate that vision. It's my privilege to be an instrument of God uh, in your life, and I don't take it lightly. Uh, and, and I would appreciate so much you praying for me each week because I really want to honor him. And as Nate and the band has so capably reminded us this, this morning, it is really all for the glory of God. We want him to be lifted up. And we want to be able to be that corner post in your life as a church. You can anchor to something in life, and, we, and, and we'll see you home. And God's Word will do that for us. Um, so this morning, we are in Ecclesiastes. And for some reason this week, I thought about that song I used to see in my childhood every Saturday night. I don't know. Did anybody watch Hee Haw when you were? <laughs> I'm, I'm dating myself for sure. Remember how Roy Clark and Buck Owens would get duet, duetted up 
on the, on the uh, stage there, and they would sing that song, Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me. Anybody, can anybody stand to your feet and sing that for everybody? Nobody? Okay. You know what I'm talking about, though. And you know, it's interesting. I got the privilege of actually hearing Roy Clark play the orange blossom on his violin down at the wagon wheel. And, and thanks to Harlan Hyde, he made that possible. So it was kind of neat to kind of relive my childhood seeing him and also seeing him do an incredible job on that. Gloom and despair and agony on me. Oh, right? We've heard that. I've heard that so many times. And that's kind of the feeling I got and I'm getting at times when I read in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's like it's, this thing starts out with meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And that's kind of how the book sets the tone. That's how King Solomon sets the tone for this whole book. I mean, imagine if you tuned into your nightly news and the news anchor gets up and he says, meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. Okay, Bill, over to you for the weather. Okay. How would you feel if, if that's the way your nightly newscast went? Well, that's kind of the way this book strikes you. Here he is, and he's gonna, he has something awesome to say, but it comes across as such a pessimistic and a negative way, almost like his gloom, despair, and agony on all of us. But in doing so, he's facing, he's being honest with the reality of his life. And that is, he has chosen in his life to live, live his life apart from God. And when we do that, it's difficult to see hope in your life. I was telling somebody uh, recently, you know, going through a rough place. You know, if, we're, if you're on a trip and you're, and you're looking for restaurants and you're hungry and you're looking for restaurants, you see re restaurants everywhere. Uh, if, you're, if you're a hunter and you're in the woods and you're looking for deer, you see deer, deer everywhere. At least you, uh, you hope you, that you do. And when you're wrestling with life and you're wrestling with meaningless, what feels meaningless, with gloom and despair, you start seeing hope everywhere or you can see hope everywhere, right? Because you know you need, to, you need hope. And see, God wants to show up in hope, and part of the way he shows up in hope in our lives is that he gives us somebody honest enough and real enough, and as they are fleshing out their spiritual life, they're real enough to tell their story. And I tell people all the time, a mark of spiritual maturity in your life is when you're, when you're man enough and you're woman enough to realize, you know what, it does feel meaningless to me, and I'm going to be real with that. And when we're real with that and we're open with that, that's a step of spiritual maturity. That's authenticity and that's sincerity and that's honesty. And that's when God shows up to meet us, and he shows up to give us hope. He can give us hope. Okay? Now, you're going to see a lot of honesty right here in our text. You've seen it from the very beginning, but if we go... Uh, to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 23. If you would just pull that verse up for me. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 23. You're going to read here in verse 23. And man, I'm loving this slide, okay? All his days, his activity is painful. Uh, Ecclesiastes, the writer says, irritating. Even at nights, his mind, his mind does not rest. So Solomon has some sleepless nights. Anybody have some sleepless nights before? He's got sleepless nights. He's real with that. Uh, not only that, verse 17, if we just go backwards, verse 17, we see that he gets to the place in his life where he says, so I hated life. Anybody else feel that way? Have you ever felt that way about life? I'm not sleeping very well. I'm hating on life. If we go to verse 12, um, a few slides before, I turn to consider wisdom, insanity, and foolishness. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? Somebody's going to come in behind me. They're going to run these same experiments that I'm running and that I have, I have experimented in my life. And, and what Solomon sees here is that not only is he not sleeping well, not only is he hating life, but now he understands he's at the stage in his life where his family that he's failed to invest in, his family's going to come up behind him, and he's not so sure that they're going to live life wisely. He has this sense that they're going to live life foolishly, and he's feeling the weight of all of that. 
and we'll see this a little bit more as we get through this. And I think when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, what we also understand is that there's something in all of us that we are born with this longing of permanence. Um, we, we are born with this longing to endure, to make something that will last, to be a part of something that will last. And when I look at this whole book of Ecclesiastes, it's like Solomon is longing for that which cannot be lost. He's longing for something that somehow God would help transform all of his pain into the beauty, into a new kind of beauty. And there is that in all of us, that somehow the painful stuff of life, if we could somehow transform it through our honesty and recognition of what we feel and being open with that, as well as to process and eventually get to see, get things from God's perspective, um, the hope is that all the pain, all the stuff that's maybe we've bought, gotten bogged down in life, somehow that can be redeemed and can be used by God. Susan Cain tells a story, slide 25 if you would for me. She tells a story about May 28, 1992, and Sarajevo was under siege. And so Sarajevo is a city of streetcars and uh, of uh, coffee shops and pastry shops and swans gliding on the park ponds in the city. But this thing became a Civil War battleground. For whatever reason, things got, uh, uh, the different groups of the city got crossways, the different ethnicities and nationalities, and so a, a civil war broke out. And the lead cellist of Sarajevo, he's the lead Sarajevo Opera Orchestra cellist, and he, and he shows up a day after 22 people who were waiting in a bread line to get bread. They were, a mortar exploded, and all 22 people lost their lives. And this guy shows up the next day, and he's dressed in his formal attire, and he just sits right down in all the carnage, and he begins to play these yearning notes of the adagio floating up to the skies. You got rifles firing, shells are booming, the rat-a-tat-tat-tat of machine gun fire all around him. And he plays the adagio, those sorrowful songs, those sorrowful notes. And he does it for 22 days. For each person killed at the bakery, the bullets never touch him. People wait for hours to cross those streets, for hours so that they won't be shot or accidentally exploded and their lives taken. And he sat for 22 days and he gives expression to this ache to, to, to turn all of the carnage of life into something that's beautiful after all. And I think one of the reasons that we're doing this series and one of the reasons we're taking an honest look at a book like Ecclesiastes is that there's the hope I think that Solomon has and that I have that somehow you and I can play the songs in the carnage of life and somehow capture the longings that we have for life to be better, for life to be beautiful in, light, in spite of the carnage and the heartbreak to somehow raise the audacio in your world in the unlikely places where you happen to be. Because see, in your battlefields, I know how this goes. You work hard and someone else maybe gets the credit. You struggle to be good and bad people trample on you in strategic times in your life. You, you accumulate maybe money and resources and now you're realizing that it's going to go to spoiled heirs. Someone that's not going to be wise with what you entrust to them. Or maybe you seek pleasure and it turns sour. And so it's not a surprise when we look at a book like Ecclesiastes. When you see this guy struggling with the meaninglessness of life and he's struggling with all these issues in his life. And, and but, but by taking the, the time and the effort, making the effort to write it down for us, he's trying to create something beautiful in the carnage, in the heartbreak. It's interesting because what it says, you know, it says meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And, and you'll notice that what he says is not that life is meaningless. He's saying, he, he says life is meaningless under the sun, he says. And he uses those three words, that phrase, 30 times in this book. Everything was meaningless, nothing was gained, under the sun, he says in Ecclesiastes 1.11. 
And then also in chapter 2, verse 17, slide number 3, if you would, for me. He talks about uh, verse 17. It says that everything is full of futility and striving. I hate a life for the work which I had been done under the sun. Go to verse 20, slide 4. And it says, therefore, I completely despaired over all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. You see that? So go to uh, verse 22. Okay, verse 22, it says, For what does a person get in all of his labor and in, in any striving which, which, uh, with which he labors under the sun? Thirty times he uses that phrase, under the sun. And what he meant is, I consider life here on earth without regard to eternity or God. And all the commentators agree, as you run a, a search on that phrase and how it's used, they all agree that Solomon decided he was going to live life in the here and now. He was going to live it as if he's saying, you know, I'm going to look around, look at the world as if there's life under the sun and that's all there is. And it's a secular worldview. I'm not going to factor God into any of this. I'm going to find our, my comfort here. We're going to find our happiness here. We're going to find our meaning right here in this life and this life only. This is life under the sun. And when you live life under the sun and you live life to the exclusion of God, you get to that place where you're going to say, I hate life, I can't sleep, and I'm, I'm discouraged with how this thing called life works. It's hard to live under the sun only. And that's what he decides to do. And so what happens is he's now late in his life. It's getting late in the game for Solomon. He's trying to be real with where he's at in life and trying to be real with how he has seen life and how he's viewed life. And he's, and, and he's now starting to see that that's not been the wisest way to live life. And the tide is coming in. Pastor Stephen Davey lived under the sun and near the beach a lot growing up. And he said that many coastal states will hold these elaborate sandcastle contests every year in the summer months along the sandy beaches. Slide number 19, if you would, for me. Um, these are like $10,000 that you can win cash prizes for some of these sand sculptures that you make. There's beautiful artistry that these guys come up with, guys and gals. Thousands of people will come and watch these contestants create their masterpieces. And some of them are super, super elaborate. You can see slide number 20 on the screen. And what's really remarkable is that they can build these things in a short amount of time. They'll show up at 9 in the morning. Uh, slide number 21, if you would. Next slide. 9 in the morning, they'll work on them all day. They'll get them done by 3 o'clock. All the people will come in. The judges will come in. They'll judge the art artistry and the creativity uh, that's gone into these things, and then they'll award their prizes. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful day. But there's something that happens in the afternoon, early evening, and it never fails, this always happens, and it's always right on time. We have a name for the, the thing that shows up in the evening at the beach, and that's called the tide. It's not the crimson tide, the football team, okay, and rolling tide. It's the ocean tide. And the tide, says Davy, comes in where the water level rises up on the shore, and the tide falls back, and when the tide arrives, all those sandcastles, as beautiful and exquisite and as uh, incredible as they are, all those sandcastles are obliterated by the tide. And it's very regular, it's very uh, predictable, and it happens every day. The tide is always on time. And I don't care what you do about it, you can't stop the tide. It's coming in, whether you want it to, to be coming in or not. You can't avoid it. And no matter how beautiful and how much work you put into these sandcastles, they're no match for the tide. As Davy says, as he introduces his sermon on this particular passage in Ecclesiastes 2, he said Solomon is looking at the tide. And he's looking at it maybe soberly and clearly for the first time in a number of decades or years. And that's like life. See, we build our sandcastles under the sun, we think this is all that life is, the here and now. 
we don't consider God's perspective, his worldview on things. And so we live as if there isn't a God and, and, and we live as if God doesn't matter and, that li- and this life is all there is. And, 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 but yet in our mind, we cannot get away from the low hum of the tide. We know the tide's coming. And I think this is the issue that's keeping Solomon up at night. You know how I just read, he can't sleep at night. He says, I hate life. Why is he saying those things? Why does he view life in such pessimistic terms? Why does he hee-haw it throughout the book with a gloom and despair and agony on me? Because he's lived his life sans world, biblical worldview. He's opted for another view of life. And now he's looking at the tide, the tide of life and its, and its, uh, its uh, temporariness. The, the tide of life, that life eventually comes, the tide comes in. And we have to uh, transition to another world and, and we have to be able to live with the life that we've lived and that we created. And so the tide is going to come in. It came in for Solomon. It's going to come in for you and for me. And it's coming in for him. And, and he hasn't prepared his family to pick up where he's left off in this thing called life. And, it's, and he can see it, he can see it more clearly than ever that his posterity and the family, he's invested in all these things, parks, um, buildings, gardens, a, ma- a massive wealth, land, um, uh, national alliances with other countries. He has given himself to all of these things, all of these sandcastles. But he neglected to do one very important thing that was invest in his family. He wanted his name in stone and marble rather than in the hearts of his kids. And now here he's facing it in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 12 through 28. In fact, Solomon makes these three comparisons in this passage. It's kind of hard to follow these comparisons, but I think once you see it, you'll begin to track it a little more easily with him. But he makes these three comparisons, and these three comparisons will help prepare you and me for when the tide rolls in. All the sandcastles that we build, and the tide is coming. It's coming for you and for me, just like it did for him. And we want to be prepared for that. And so Solomon does this in hope that his son, who will replace him as king someday, would have a better finish than he had in his life when the tide was coming in for him. Really, the comparisons are simple. He compares the wise and the foolish in verses 12 through 17. He compares the immediate with the ultimate in in verses 18 through 21. And then the third comparison that he makes is really between the workplace and the home place. And if you you, uh, uh, overemphasize the workplace and that has a bigger priority than the home place in your life, chances are you're not going to like it when the tide comes in because you haven't put your uh, priority and your time and your effort and energy where it needs to be. And so that's where Solomon is. And, and you know, I was thinking about as I, as I was reading this, Joey, am I wise? Am I foolish? Am I a wise man? Do I look at, be- at the world as God looks at it? Joey, do I give more attention to the immediate or the ultimate? Do I sacrifice the ultimate on the altar of the immediate in my life? How am I doing that? And so I was looking at it from just a personal application standpoint. What about the workplace? Do I bring the workplace into home and not focus on what I need to be focusing on at home and a family? Or am I always preoccupied with the workplace? And so really this is Solomon's way of gathering the people around him, his family around him, anybody who would listen, offering these comparisons and say, okay, now let's get wiser. Let's look at life more wisely than we've looked at it before. Let's be prepared for the, when the tide rolls in and all the sandcastles we've built and it's all subject to decay. Let's make sure that we've angled our life in such a way, we've set our life up in such a way that we're ready when the tide comes in. So the wise and the foolish is the first comparison here. Verses 12 through 17 of Ecclesiastes 2. And the way I would just say this is it's Solomon's way of saying, son, don't confuse the spirit of a boy with the wisdom of a man. Okay, Randy Travis sang a song several years ago, Spirit of, Spirit of a Boy, Wisdom of a Man. And what he's saying is, there's a, there's, it's about a boy, a young man, who he's, either he's going to follow his whims in life, and, or he's going to be 
He's going to act with integrity and good faith. And that's the, that's the name of the song, spirit of a boy, wisdom of a man. And so what he's, what he's helping us see here is that he's raised a family and he's not so sure that they're going to have the wisdom of a, of a man. They're going to have more of the spirit of the boy. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 12, uh, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 12. So I turn, this is Solomon speaking, facing the tide, okay? He's feeling the temporariness of life. He's feeling maybe some misplaced priorities, a little bit of regret circling, circling around inside of him. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom, insanity, and foolishness. For what will the man do, i.e., my son, what's he going to do who will come after the king except what, he is, what has already been done before? Solomon's saying, this son of mine whom I've neglected to invest in, this family of mine I've neglected to invest in, um, I can see them doing the same experiments that I have done in my life and I'm not so sure that they're going to be wise about how they view these resources that I'm leaving to them. And so it's really Solomon uh, referencing his son Rehoboam. Uh, Rehoboam, we know, succeeded Solomon as a king and, and his behavior, in fact, divides the kingdom. He had all these great resources. And uh, my sense is that Solomon sees this trajectory of his son and he's like, you know what? I'm not so sure I've put my, my priority in the right place. Look at slide number eight for me. Let's just look at uh, a little bit about Rehoboam just to get a feel for this. Uh, Rehoboam, uh, verse 1 in 1 Kings 12, Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had gone there to make him king. And when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. And so these are Solomon's sons and there was a kind of a, a, a family feud. He returned from G Egypt. And so they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of, of Israel went to Rehoboam, and they said to him, slide nine, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the, the people went away, and then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will, they will always be your servants. Wisdom of a man. But now we see the spear of the boy. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders he gave, uh, elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. And he asked them, what is your advice? How should I lead? How, how should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the, the, loke, the yoke your father put on us? The young men here, spirit of the boy, not a wisdom of a man here, spirit of a boy. The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions, which is a specialized whip with bits of metal in it. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given them by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Spirit of a boy, not the wisdom of a man. Well, what else do we read about Rehoboam? Well, we see in slide number 13, 1 Kings 14, 21, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king, the text says, on the screen. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Naamah. She was an Ammonite. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them that they had done. Verse 23, they also set up themselves high places, sacred stones, Asherah poles on every high hill, under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations. The Lord had driven out before the Israelites. 
We read on in verse, verse 26, uh, he replaced the gold shields with bronze shields because the Egyptians had, had uh, ransacked the city, the royal city. And whenever, verse 28, slide 16, whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards bore the shields, and afterward they returned them to the guard room. And as for the other events of the Rehoboam's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam lost ten twelfths of his father's kingdom. Ten of the twelve tribes went and started their own nation, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. Here's what I think. Solomon has given himself to a secular worldview throughout his life. He gave himself to pleasure, to treasure, to measure. We had that sermon last week. He gave it to all these things. Now he's looking, the tide's coming in. Those sandcastles he's built, those beautiful, exquisite works of art he has all around him, the tide's rolling in. And now he's looking ahead, and he's thinking, what's going to endure because I lived? Have I invested in the right places? Have I given myself to the right things? And he looks and he sees, I've done everything in life I've wanted to do, and I've missed one big important thing. I failed to invest in what matters most, my sons. In fact, Solomon writes, a wise son makes a glad father. Solomon says in Proverbs, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. The tide is coming in. And he's thinking, what good is it to be wise and wealthy if I don't invest in the things that matter most? He says, verse 13, slide number two. Then I saw that wisdom surpasses foolishness as light surpasses darkness. He says, this son of mine is going to come in behind me, and rather than listen to me, he's going to run these same experiments that I have run, and because I've not invested in him in such a way, he's going to make these decisions, going to ruin his life. And in fact, Solomon's kingdom and posterity and his legacy didn't last not even one generation. Because he decided, Solomon decided, I'm going to live as if there is no God. I'm going to live as if God is import, not important. Biblical worldview is not important. I'm going to pursue this, this, and this, and this. And the problem is that that gets transitioned down to our families, and it impacts our families. And what happens is we can end up living with the spirit of a boy rather than the wisdom of a man. I, when I was reading this and thinking about it, uh, pull up the Ben Stein slide. It's a, two book covers. And I was thinking, Ben Stein wrote a book years ago, How to Ruin Your Life. And not only that, but I thought of another book, Steve Farrar, who's gone on to heaven. He's written a lot of good books, especially for men. He wrote a book, just a little paperback, called How to Ruin Your Life by Age 40. I was curious because when I just read to you what I just read in the text, Rehoboam was 41. 41. And Farrar wrote a book that would have been great for him to read, and that is How to Ruin Your Life by Age 40. Rehoboam ruined his life. And, and you know what? Here's how to ruin your life. You look at these guys. They, all, they have a lot, of, a, a lot of advice and a lot of things, but I'm just going to kind of reduce it down to the, to the salient points that they make. And uh, Stein, Farrar, these guys, all these guys have wrote about this stuff and thought about well, what, what's key to life and success and Passing on, you know, the legacy of the next generation. This is what he says in a, in a Ecclesiastes uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic way of looking at this. If you want to ruin your life, convince yourself that you're the center of the universe. Do it your way. Don't listen to your older counselors. Listen to your peers, your boyfriends, your girlfriends. That's what Rehoboam did. Convince yourself that you are the center of the universe. Do it your way. All must worship at your shrine. What else do these guys say? We'll never be grateful for anything. If you want to ruin your life, you want to ruin your legacy, if you want to hate life when the tide's rolling in, never be grateful for anything. Envy everyone and appreciate nothing. You don't owe anybody anything. And live with that attitude. 
What else these guys say? Well, if you want to ruin your life, make the people around you feel really small. Make sure people know that you are better than they are. Rub their noses in their deficiencies. Does that sound like something maybe Rehoboam decided to do? He did. Steve Farrar, Ben Stein, a lot of other people will tell you, if you want to ruin your life, make people around you feel small, never be grateful, convince yourself you're the center of the universe, make sure everybody bows and worships at the shrine of you. And see, I think Solomon has lived portions of his life this way. And he understands, uh uh-oh, the tide's rolling in. I built my sandcastles, but I forgot something. I've neglected something. He says in uh, slide two for me, slide two. He says, verse 14, the wise person's eyes are in his head. He wants so much for that son of his to be wise, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one and the same fate happens to both of them. A, A wise person's eyes are in his head, he says. I don't know where else they would be. What's he saying? Okay, both eyes are open. He says he's got 20-20 vision. It's a way of saying that, that this person is, has their eyes open in life. They have their, they, they're, they're proceeding and acting with care and caution and they understand. But the fool walks through life as though he were in a fog. He, he would describe, we would describe him today by saying that he's in the dark. And it's intriguing to me that, that uh, Solomon used the word fool 18 times in this journal that we call Ecclesiastes. And it's not that the guy isn't smart or intelligent. No, no, there's a very, very um, solid market for well-educated fools. And that is a fool is a person who's self-centered, who, who, who has decided to dishonor God in his life. And because of that, he's like in a fog and he just... He, he runs from one accident in life to the next, to the next, to the next, because he's living his life according to a viewpoint where God is not a priority. He, he or she is the priority. And it sets you up to ruin your life, even in an early age. You know, if we skip, uh, go to slide number three for me, we'll skip to verse 17. Uh, quickly here, Solomon says, so I hated life. For the work which had done, which had been done under the sun. Well, why was he hating in life and work so much? It was unhappy to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. I'm disgusted. And I think he's, with life, he says, I, I think he's sick of pleasure. I think he's running out of time. I think he's not invested where it should, he should have invested. The tide is rolling in. And now he has this, this kind of premonition of how it's all going to go. And he, he can hardly live with himself. And it really brings us back to the question this morning, are you wise or are you foolish? Question I ask myself, are you wise or are you foolish? Is life going to be on you, for you and your terms or is it going to be lived for the glory of another, the one who created you? See, the tide is coming in And you can't avoid the tide. I can't avoid the tide. We can't cheat the tide. We can't outlast the tide. But the only thing we have hope of doing is to rise above the tide. And we know that all of these teachers God gives us in the Old Testament, these prophets and these people walking through life like Solomon, they all point to somebody else. And we know through Jesus we can rise above the tide And when we have him as number one and central in our life, it's amazing how the rest of life lines up and gets right. When he's Lord, he's front and center. Question is, are you wise or are you foolish? That's the first comparison. We'll just quickly hit the second one, probably wrap it up with this one this morning, verses 18 through 21. He compares the wise and the foolish and basically says, son, don't confuse the spirit of a boy with the wisdom of a man. Now he, he, he says, He compares the immediate and the ultimate in verses 18 through 21. Basically, son, don't sacrifice the ultimate on the altar of the immediate. He says in verse 18, slide four, I hated not only life, but I hated the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. I'm going to have to leave all of this hard work to Rehoboam and I haven't prepared him for it. 
and the tide is rolling in. All these parks and gardens and fruit trees and vineyards, the, the, the houses that he built, all of this, all of these resources. And he understands it has the capacity not only to be lost, but to destroy the son that's going to receive it because he's not ready for it. Solomon feels entirely unfulfilled with his amazing career because he can't guarantee what he leaves behind will be managed well. And it was driving him to this point of insane distraction because he's going to have to leave it all behind to somebody who's never earned or accomplished much and isn't ready and doesn't know how to handle it. And then who knows after that? Because verse 19, slide four, who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is futility. He knew he couldn't guarantee his legacy would continue, and it doesn't. Like I said, the first generation, it falls apart, and his worst fear is going to be realized when his son Rehoboam essentially throws it all away. He sacrificed the ultimate on the altar of the immediate. I have to ask myself that question. Joey, are you sacrificing the ultimate on the altar of the immediate? So many times, see, like my key word growing up when Will and Levi and Megan were at home, my key word was wait as a parent. Just wait. Just give it some time. Don't, don't give up too much too early you want to keep this thing on a tight trajectory in a good direction right we don't want to ruin your life before 40 right don't sacrifice the ultimate on the altar of the immediate and when you do a, a, an internet search on that people are doing that all the time story after story after story and um, it's interesting because um, people who, who maybe their parents have worked really hard to set, set them up in life, and yet somehow the, the transfer of values doesn't take place. In fact, a case in point is Jack Whitaker, slide number 23. Problems began for Jack Whitaker on the night of Christmas 2002 in Putnam County, West Virginia. This guy was a construction op- entrepreneur and he won a record-setting Powerball jackpot, and he became somewhat of a local celebrity uh, because of just the stories that happened after he won the Powerball jackpot. He, uh, rather than break up the $315 million prize in, into dozens of payments, he took $113 million after taxes in a single lump sum, and he was 55 at the time. I hope somebody taught him tithing. After winning, Whitaker vowed that the prize would not, ch- would not change him. And, of course, he did do a lot of good. But he also gambled a lot. He bragged a lot. He lost a lot of money to thieves, and, he, and he, did, he did do some good with it, but he also did a lot of harm with it. But he said, if I can help it, this is not going to change me. I'm content with my life. It's going to excite my daughter, my granddaughter, and I get my enjoyment out of it. By spending the, watching them spend the money, he says. And he gave a stipend to his 17-year-old granddaughter. Uh, $2,000 a week was her stipend. I'm sure that's enough to cover milk and, and uh, salad at school. Uh, so $2,000 a week, um, he gifted her with four cars over the time that she had with him and, and that she was alive. And I'll get to that in a second. His granddaughter... Brandy Bragg, which is there in the picture on the left, was 17 years of age. And among that $2,000 and what it went for, she fell deeply into drugs. And it was a habit that was fueled by her grandfather's fortune. Her boyfriend, Jesse Tribble, 18, he was found dead in Whitaker's Taze Valley home of a drug overdose in September 2004. And three months later, Brandy disappeared on December the 9th. Grow on your left. And her body was discovered, slide 24, discovered December the 20th, 2004, wrapped up in plastic and dumped in a wood pile behind a junk van in Putnam County, West Virginia, outside the home of a former boyfriend. 
And the boyfriend admitted Brandy had overdosed and it scared him and in a panic he didn't know what to do and so he hid her lifeless body. Not only that, three years after winning this incredible amount of money, he filed for divorce. Jack Whitaker filed for divorce. His home ended up burning down. And he died on June 27, 2020, at the age of 73. He sacrificed the ultimate on the altar of the immediate. So did Solomon. So did Rehoboam. So did Jack Whitaker's granddaughter. And I don't want that to be my story. This is why he says, verse 20, slide number four, I completely despaired over all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun. When there is a person who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill and then gives his legacy to one who has not labored for it, this too is futility and a great evil. You see, Solomon sees it. The tide's coming in. He can see it. And all that he's worked for, everything he's built is going to be left for somebody else. He's amassed all these wonderful things. But he forgot to invest in the guys coming behind him who will inherit it all. And so the question this morning is not, are you wise or are you foolish? The question is also, are you sacrificing the ultimate on the altar of the immediate? And if we do that, you're going to feel life is under the sun. It's so vain. It's so empty. You're going to hate it. You're going to hate it. Solomon wants to set you up for a better finish. We're out of time. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much for this day, and thank you so much for the wisdom of your word. This book of Ecclesiastes is so good. And we ask and pray here this morning that we would just glean the wisdom that we need to glean from this book. As gloomy and despairing as it feels sometimes, we know there's a lot of wisdom here. And I just pray whatever sandcastles we're working on this morning, whatever thing that we're building around us, that we'll not forget to invest in what really matters. And we know because of Christ and the priority of Jesus, we know this morning that that is the answer to life and that is the only way that we're going to rise above the tide. And thank you for his life and thank you for what he's done to show us the true value and meaning of life. And I ask and pray this morning, regardless of what our kids do, that we would always love you and serve you and put you first. Regardless of what our kids do, um, we would just prioritize you and your work in this world, and we would live our lives in such a way that we honor God with all of our resources, and that in our speech, in the manner in which we live, the way we do our jobs, the way we coach our teams and teach our classes and run our factory lines, that it would just represent you, and we would have wisdom and all those things, and, and God, you direct us in our work so it doesn't feel like it's a, it's a futile effort every day, that we can go to work on Monday morning and have it be a blessing and not feel like it's meaningless because we're doing it for your glory. God, this is my prayer. And regardless of what our children do, help us to honor you in that. But I would be remiss this morning, Lord if I didn't hope and pray that my own kids would inherit a biblical worldview where the priorities are where they need to be and where they're going to live for the ultimate, not just sacrifice everything on the altar of the immediate. Whether it's a drug rush or some uh, lifestyle decision or other thing that we just can't wait on, we're just going to push and, and pull and, and prod and... and, and uh, maneuver and control and manipulate life to come to us on our terms lord know that we would we would instead come to you in full surrender and see that life can only be lived where we can flourish and thrive and grow because we live it on your terms and so whatever we've been entrusted with this morning whether it's millions and millions or whether it's just a little whether it's multiple properties or just a small place in Cromwell or Ligonier or Wawaka, whether it's a large family with many children and many, many generations or just maybe just one or two, 
Lord, whether we have great opportunities or just minimal open doors, I ask and pray this morning that we'll be wise with what you've entrusted to us and not foolish, that we'll not sacrifice the ultimate on the altar of the immediate, and that when that tide rolls in, we'll be ready and we can face that moment with joy knowing that we we put our emphasis where it needed to be. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Will you stand with me this morning? You've been a great group. Thank you so much. Next week, we're going to get into Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which is a time for everything, a time to be born, a time to die. Remember that passage, a time to, all those uh, parallel statements. So read ahead, Ecclesiastes 3 next week. We'll see you, we'll see you then.